Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. Well, have you ever heard the phrase, the Lord works in mysterious ways? It's one of those cliches that's often uttered in the face of incomprehensible mystery. It's essentially a shrug of the shoulders. It's one of those phrases that sounds like it could be in the Bible. It surely is inspired by verses like Isaiah 55 verse 8, where the Lord says, My ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. The Lord works in mysterious ways. This is a line from a hymn written by William Cowper, and it's made its way into the common lexicon. And it's true. In a way, of course, that, that many things are true. It sounds faithful and trusting, but I also think it can be used as a bit of a crutch to avoid asking some of the hard questions that the Bible presents to us. We, we reach one of those hard questions today in our study in Revelation. As we've been looking at this often mysterious book, you know, we talk about the Lord moving in mysterious ways, and surely Revelation is an example of that. We sing with Bono from U2, she moves in mysterious ways. And thus far in Revelation, in this series entitled Come, as we see this command and this invitation uttered again and again throughout the book of Revelation, and we echo the cry of Jesus for all who are thirsty, all to come to him. And so as we continue in this series, we reach a section of Revelation that is puzzling. Thus far in Revelation, and really in the New Testament as a whole, we've seen Jesus as glorious, this faithful shepherd, risen and reigning, but present and near, urging these churches here in Revelation towards faithfulness and endurance, warning us to turn from idolatry and the ways of empire. We heard the voice of one who sounded like a lion. And when John looked, all his expectations were of this regal, kingly beast, this one who could conquer. But when he turned his attention towards the voice that sounded like a lion, what he saw was not an apex predator, but a slain lamb that by his very blood had overcome the world. And as we turn towards Revelation 6 today, we encounter a new trope in the book of Revelation. Revelation, for all its mystery and all of its symbolism, has puzzled readers throughout the centuries. And we no more have access to the answers, the answer key of here's exactly what these things are saying. But the way that we're trying to read Revelation is to pay attention to the movements and to the cadence that John is trying to bring us through. Not so we can map our own world events onto the book of Revelation. It doesn't work that way. But so that we can enter the world and immerse ourselves in the text of Revelation. And as we encounter Revelation 6 today, we encounter this new feature that John introduces. Revelation features three series of judgments, images that increase in severity, increase in the way that they impact the world and the number of people in the world that they impact. Now, much has been made of these judgments. And when I say much, 
I mean, people have sold New York Times bestsellers saying that when John sees locusts, he had no image that could be, uh, that he could convey what machine gun bullets look like. And so John's really describing machine gun bullets. And when he sees tanks, he has no image to, or words to put to that. So he describes a beast. Friends, that is irresponsible and negligent reading of Revelation. It might work out to be true, but there is nothing in the text that would lead you to believe that any of that could be on John's mind. And so much has been made, many books have been sold, by trying to contort and distort Revelation. And many people, you know, because we live in such a broken world, there are catastrophes all around us. You know, we talk about 2020 being hard and difficult, but go back to 2019. Look at the top stories that were happening there, the earthquakes, the natural disasters, the, the pain and suffering of people. Uh, 2020 is unique for sure, but 2019, if you look at the top stories on Google, was not much better. But people in seeing the pain of our world, and reading about these mysterious judgments in Revelation have tried to fit those events together. And really, it becomes kind of a, a square peg and a round hole. And as we move through the texts in this series, where we, where we will encounter some of these texts, I want, I want to frame these for us as we begin. Richard Bauckham, the one of the most uh, preeminent Revelation scholars that we have, says about these judgments, he says, the point is is not to predict a sequence of events the point is to evoke and to explore the meaning of the divine judgment which is impending on the sinful world today we're going to look at one series of these judgments and my hope as we begin this series is that we'll begin to see that that our uh, the task that is before us as we try to read revelation well and as we try to read it faithfully is not to figure out what these symbols mean, but to immerse ourselves in the world of Revelation so that we might be transformed to live more faithfully, more like the slain land that is at the true center of the universe and at the true center of the book of Revelation. Let's look in Revelation 6 verse 1. John says, Then I saw the lamb open one of the seals and i heard one of the four living creatures call out as with a voice of thunder come i looked and there was a white horse its rider had a bow a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer when he opened the second seal i heard the second living creature call out come and out of came another horse bright red its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people would slaughter one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature call out, Come! I looked, and there was a black horse. Its rider held a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's pay, and three quarts of barley for a day's pay, but do not damage the olive oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the living creature call out, Come! I looked, and there was a pale green horse. Its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed with him. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, famine and pestilence, and by the wild animals of the earth. This is a difficult text. 
And one of the things that I am the most passionate about as a pastor, as a teacher of the Bible, as, as a part of my ministry, is to help people be confident in the picture of God that is revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is every bit as good, as beautiful, as true, as powerful as he seems, and that the cross of Christ it reveals God and expresses an omnipotence, but not omnipotence in the, in the sense of power of unlimited coercion, but in the, in the invincible power of self-negating, self-sacrificial love, to quote G.B. Caird. And what I hope for you today is that you'll take away this sense that as we turn to Revelation 6, we have not left the slain lamb behind. When we read a passage like this, if we're paying attention, it should cause us to raise some questions. In Revelation 5, John saw that the Lamb of God, Jesus, was the only one worthy to open the seals. And if you pay attention while we're reading in Revelation 6, the Lamb is the one who is opening the seals, releasing these judgments, calling forth these writers, these creatures around the throne, or saying to the writers, come. And so it seems as if heaven is beckoning these agents of destruction and death and pestilence. And look at what's going on. Economic inequity, warfare, slaughter. I mean, is this the kind of God that is being introduced by Revelation? What happened to the slain lamb who gives of his very life instead of taking the life of his enemies? And how, how could this in any way be considered the good work of a good God? Has the lamb who conquered the world by giving of his own blood on the cross now become a vindictive conqueror who sets these horsemen loose upon the world? Is this just God working in mysterious ways that, you know, for all accounts and everything we can see, seem altogether terrible? Friends, my hope for you today is that you'll see, not, not that I'm going to be an apologist for God, I hope that you don't hear me trying to say, well, you know, you could look at it this way. I, I have no interest in doing that. What my interest is, is, is helping us read these texts so that we can live these texts face, faithfully. I think that Revelation is among the most prescient books for the church of God in America. I think it is calling us to a radical faithfulness. And I hope you'll see that even a text like this can point to the beauty of Jesus on the cross. Let's look at the horsemen specifically for a couple minutes. The first rider is given a crown. Now, it may seem reasonable to assume that the crown was given to him by the lamb who opened the seal to release him. But the one who gives the horseman the crown is not made specific here. The Greek verb is a passive verb, which is reflected in our translations. What's clear to us is that the judgments that the riders on the horses embody are authorized by God. He, he, he gives his permission. But the question remains, there was a difference between permission and willing something to happen. Do the judgments represent the will of God? Does God save our souls and then unleash carnage upon the world because by and large, the world remains sinful and rebellious and unjust? I want to suggest no, not at all. And I think this is so important for us to grasp as a people. First, these agents are not ordained by God, commanded or empowered by Him. 
Rather, the verb here suggests divine permission. The New Testament, if you read the scope of it, suggests evil forces that exist in our world working against the purposes of God. God's fundamental disposition towards these powers is restraint and casting out and eventually complete destruction. God summoning these riders to come is not an invitation for these agents to come and do God's bidding, but it is the command of God for the forces of darkness to reveal themselves, for the way of the beast, which we will meet later in Revelation, to be made plain to all. It's instructive that the first thing that Jesus does in the Gospel of Mark is cast out a demon. He confronts the forces of darkness. When Jesus confronts the demons, They have no recourse. They have no hope. They do what they are told. Jesus confronts the forces of darkness and he expels them. And so what we see from this is that, yes, God is ultimately sovereign. He is not threatened by these evil forces. But because he is a God of freedom, because he has given those made in his image, humanity, freedom, because he has given principalities and powers, angels of light and darkness, freedom, there exists the possibility that forces will be contrary to his will in the world. And this is the image that C.S. Lewis paints of hell in The Great Divorce. It's not a place where God is actively, and, and you know, in some depictions, especially from the medieval times, sort of joyfully and gleefully tormenting those who d- reject God. But it's that God has passively turned away. He has turned his face away in his presence. And he has respected the wishes of those who say to God, no, thank you. Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza says, God authorizes calamities, but does not will them. Ecclesia, God is love. And he never ceases to give of himself in love. The judgment of God is a call to all to repent, to turn back towards his love. It exposes our, uh, the, our contingent lives, the way that we are not as self-sufficient and as rational as we would think that we are. But when we continually harden our hearts towards his love, we receive his love not as a comfort, not as an invitation to repent, but as the consequence of our sin, as the, what the Bible calls the wrath of God. But even the wrath of God is not final. The wrath of God executed against sinfulness sinfulness and injustice is still an invitation to the whole world to come, to turn, to change from our sinful ways, and to follow the way of the slain lamb. The result of self-serving rule of imperial power is conquering, war, famine, suffering, and death. And friends, no matter what we've been told, we need look no further than the history and current realities in our own country. This land that we live on, that we call home, was stolen from indigenous peoples who lived here before many of our ancestors arrived. And it was also built upon the backs of people who were ripped from their homeland, stolen, tortured, murdered, separated from their families. This is the reality of empire. 
And we live under the umbrella of that. We see the effects in the past, the ongoing effects in the present. Empire reveals that it has no interest other than perpetuating its own. And what Jesus is showing us is that there is another way. Look at what Michael Gorman says about the judgment of God. The judgment of the world originates in its failure to believe and to be faithful to God. When it creates its own deities, it suffers the natural consequences of deifying the non-divine. In this sense, judgment proceeds from the throne of God and from the Lamb because the rejection of the divine gift of life carries with it inherent deadly consequences. God is always giving of himself in love, trying to draw us to a life with him in worship and in relationship and in allegiance to the one true God. But when we give that worship, that allegiance, to other forces that are not God, it results in this kind of judgment. John's imagery here, as we're looking in Revelation 6, is steeped in the Old Testament. It is the vocabulary of his imagination. And one of the major stories and themes that he continually circles back to is that of the Exodus story. And the Exodus is about a slave people. The chosen people of God are enslaved in Egypt. And God miraculously and powerfully liberates them through a series of judgments and through an ultimate and final judgment on the Red Sea. And the judgments here in Revelation 6 are indicative of the slavery of life in Egypt. Just as the people called out under the weight of their suffering in Exodus 3, the people of God here in Revelation chapter 6 cry out, How long? And just as the people saw these cataclysmic signs, these plagues of frogs and, and locusts and the, the water of the river Nile being turned to blood, so John is describing these incredible judgments as indicative of a sort of apocalyptic and chaotic order to the world. And the sixth seal, as John, opened, or John describes its opening in Revelation chapter 6, brings these kind of cataclysmic events. The sky blacked out, earthquakes, and the kings of the earth are powerless in the face of all of it. And as the judgments continue to unfold, we move towards Revelation 7, and we see there the explicit language of a new exodus. As the plagues continue to befall the people of God, God is restraining the destructive forces of judgment. Look at Revelation uh, 7, verse 3. Do not damage the earth or the sea or the trees until, until we have marked the servants of God with a seal on their forehead. Uh, verse 4. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed out of every tribe of the people of Israel. John here describes how God is preserving his people in the midst of these kinds of judgments. Even though the world is being judged for its sinfulness, for its idolatry, and even in that judgment is being called back to the very heart of God, God says that in the midst of all of that, he will protect his people. And in the Exodus story, the way that he protects his people as the angel of death passes through the camp on that fateful night, that Passover night, is a, a mark of blood is placed over the door. There is a seal over the door that protects them. And in John's language here in Revelation 7, the people are sealed on their foreheads, sealed by the very love of God, marked as God's people. 
And John lists here the tribes of Israel, and we're not going to read each individual verse, but he lists each of the 12 tribes and numbers those people at 144,000. This counting of the people is reminiscent of the military censuses that were often taken by the ancient kings of Israel. You can see these in Chronicles and in uh, the book of Numbers. Twelve in the book of Revelation is a symbolic number for the people of God. There were 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, Jesus had 12 apostles. 12 represents, is a representative number for God's people. And the number here is multiplied exponentially to suggest this massive, unnameable, incountable multitude. And John hears this. He describes that he heard the number was 144,000, but then he turns and he looks. He uses a different sense. And look at what he sees. Look at Revelation 7, verse 9. After this, I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne of God. And before the Lamb, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands, they cried out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Every tongue, every tribe and nation, this is exodus for all. Jesus has nothing short of the entire world in view. This is the fulfillment to the promise given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that through him, through this childless father, he would give birth to many nations, that all the world would be blessed. The church is this new humanity. And I love the interplay here. Tongues, tribes, nations are still discernible. You can still see the differences in these cultures and these people. The kingdom is not some colorblind utopia. Jesus sees color. Jesus sees the beauty of different cultures and languages. And this incredible diversity makes up the mosaic that will be his people. Friends, Ecclesia, this is why as a people, as a church, we will stand vigilantly against white supremacy. It must be opposed with everything within us. White supremacy denies the image of God that is the gift and dignity of every single person. And it denies the glorious reality of the church, what we are supposed to be now, and the destiny that awaits us. Ecclesia, our destiny is not a united, cheap diversity project, but in our true language of worship and the love of God, we are made to be his people, manifesting every tongue and tribe and nation. And John gets clarity on the identity of the countless multitudes that he sees. Look in verse 13. It says, Then one of the elders addressed me and saying, Who are these robed in white and where have they come from? And John said to him, Sir... You are the one that knows. And then he said to me, These are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Remember, John heard the number 144,000 as an accounting of military manpower and human power. But now, as he looks at the congregation, as he uses his eyes, he sees those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Jesus is the new Passover Lamb that has brought exodus for all, and the way that his people fight alongside him is the same way that Jesus comes in his kingdom. 
the blood of Jesus. Ecclesia, here's what this means. The Lord absolutely works in mysterious ways. He works in ways that are according to Paul are the foolishness to the world. He works in ways of meekness. Instead of demanding his rights and his privileges, he lays down his rights, as Philippians 2 says, emptying himself, even taking upon death and death on a cross. Instead of killing and conquering, he gives of his own blood on the cross, conquering by the invincible power of self-giving love. These are mysterious ways. But they are consistent. We don't have a turn from Revelation 5, the slain lamb who gives of his life, to Revelation 6, the conquering one who sends out emissaries to kill and steal and destroy. Jesus doesn't come to his kingdom in one way and consummate his kingdom in another. He doesn't start by shedding his blood on behalf of the world and then end by shedding the blood of all who reject him. And his people, those who form uh, from every tongue and tribe and nation, wage the battle of faithfulness and truth. We are called to wage this battle in exactly the same way. Look at what Greg Boyd says from his wonderful work, The Crucifixion of the Warrior God. In the kingdom that Jesus inaugurated, it is precisely a person's love for their enemies and their pledge to never retaliate that is the ultimate sign of their loyalty to God. In life and in death, we rely upon the blood of Jesus to save us and to sustain us. We heed his call to leave behind a destructive reign of empire and all of its consequences, and we come out from it into a kingdom of worship and freedom and true human unity. Just as the people who walked across the dry land of the Red Sea stood on the shores of freedom, dancing and singing, the people here, saved and redeemed, lift up their song to the Lamb. They cried out, it says in verse 10 in uh, Revelation 7, salvation belongs to our God, to him who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Jesus' call to faithfulness in the here and now is a call to freedom. Look at what it says in verse 15 of chapter 7. For this reason... They are before the throne of God and they worship him day and night and within his temple. And the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of water of life and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We started this passage of judgment with these kind of passive verbs. A crown was given to them, but now, Ecclesia, we see the active verbs. What is God actively engaged in? Look at verse 17 again. The lamb is the shepherd. He is guiding us to springs of water. He is wiping every tear away from our eyes. This is who Jesus is. You can have confidence in this picture because it is so good. Ecclesia, Jesus is inviting us to see him for who he is. And he's also by showing us his incomprehensible light in revealing us in all of its glory. He's showing us the ways of the kingdom of darkness and saying that way only ends in death and destruction. That way only ends in inequity and pestilence and, and world-shaking problems. Ecclesia, but he's inviting us 
to His careful provision. How many of us know this? How many of us know this sense of trying to carve out a way on our own and have found nothing but emptiness and brokenness? Jesus is saying, come, come. I will wipe away every tear from your eye. How many of us live with with unspeakable pain and suffering and sorrow? Jesus says, come, I will wipe away every tear from your eye. How many of us are searching for a sense of meaning, for something that makes life coherent and congruent? Jesus says, come, I will lead you myself to springs of everlasting living water. He himself is our shepherd. This is who Jesus is, the one who walks alongside of us. And we can be confident in that picture. It doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't challenge us. It doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't confront. It certainly doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't judge. You know, the Old Testament, when it talks about the judgment of God, rejoices in it because we all long for the world to be made right again. But what we see here in Revelation 6 is not the arbitrary judgments of a vindictive God who who comes to the throne of the world on a cross, giving of his own blood, and then turns to shed the blood of his enemies. No. What we see here is that Jesus is subverting these violent images He is, in doing so, revealing the results, the disastrous consequences of empire, the disastrous consequences of living in idolatry and worshiping the kingdom of self. Alan Mann, in his book, talks about Project Self, that if we spend our lives building up Project Self, what we find is ultimately emptiness. Jesus is saying, come. There is a way that is better, a way of freedom, a way that is bought and paid for by the blood of the Lamb. And it is available to us right now. Ecclesia, I pray that you, in a way, before that before this talk started, is unique and fresh and new, that the Holy Spirit is saying, you can be confident in the picture of the slain Lamb that sits at the center of the world. He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our hearts. And I pray that you can be confident that He is able to sustain, able to provide, able to wipe every tear from our eyes. Let us see that the picture of God, yes, He works in mysterious ways, but He is revealing Himself to us. And the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God, that He is the image of the invisible God. That in the past, God spoke in many ways, in many places, but He has revealed Himself fully in His Son. We can have confidence in this picture. And we can follow and trust and live our lives in light of who He is. Grace and peace to you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.